T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. And as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. Welcome to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. This is Grant Cameron. Today I'm doing another segment on the connection between major world events and UFOs. Mentioned earlier, and I'll just sort of review this uh, for people who may not have heard the first couple, there's been a number of incidents where uh, we've had UFO events, and some of this goes back to my encounters with Bob Pratt, who was at the National Enquirer, uh, when he came here to Manitoba in 1975-1976 to do the Charlie Red Star story. They were going to call Manitoba UFO capital of the world, so I got to know him fairly well and was watching some of the major stories that he was chasing after for the National Enquirer. He had basically an unlimited amount of money, and um, most of those stories I will be talking about in the nuclear event. So these are um, major events that um, they found very interesting. We've already discussed some before. The um, Robert Hastings statement that in 1940 at Hanford, where they were building the um, some of the nuclear components for the bombs, um, there was UFO sightings there. In 1945, Jacques Vallée, Paula Harris have just come out with a book that um, shows this UFO crash uh, right after Trinity, days after Trinity occurred in 1945, the test of the first atomic bomb. Uh, 1947 uh, was the Roswell situation where the only atomic bomb wing, this is the, um, the Roswell, it was, uh, the Air Force Base there, that dropped the two atomic bombs on Japan. Uh, the Roswell crash occurred just outside of town there. And the interesting thing about that, and with all these stories, we may be missing some of the components of the UFO event or some of the events, particularly of the nuclear events that may still be classified. The Roswell event is one of those. We did not know about Roswell and the connection to the military and to the atomic bomb and all that sort of stuff, until 1980 when Bill Moore wrote the book uh, on Roswell. Before then, nobody knew what Roswell was, and it really didn't, wouldn't have meant anything. Uh, we've already mentioned the um, fact that the first sort of interaction between aliens talking to human beings was right after, days after the detonation of the hydrogen bomb in 1952, when Adamski met um, the beings in the desert. The 1954 um, Castle Bravo test, which occurred on March 1954, uh, eight days before that was the rumored uh, meeting between Eisenhower and the aliens, which may or may not have taken place. 
Um, today I'm going to discuss the big one, that's um, uh, the Nancy Tremaine and the Betty Hill case, which I'll get to. Uh, we already know the West the Westall School I mentioned in the previous episode, that was the first uh, hearing on UFOs in Congress, occurred on the same day. I discussed the last time the uh, Six-Day War and the connection to um, UFOs connected to the Six-Day War. The, the Malmstrom Air Force Base shut down. Um, the um, 1975 abduction of Sandy Larson, uh, which is the same year that our events were taking place after they put the anti-ballistic missile unit into Nakoma, North Dakota. Uh, Sandy Larson was just outside of Fargo, North Dakota, near two missile silos, and she encountered eight to ten objects and had this um, abduction experience. The 1975 event along the Canadian-U.S. border, uh, where all the SAC bases were that had the atomic bombs, had the uh, nuclear weapons storage areas uh, visited by UFOs in a late October, early November of 1975, and at exactly the same time as those encounters were taking place at the SAC bases, Travis Walton was abducted. Now, today I'm going to discuss a couple of new ones, and um, uh, the, the one we're going to discuss now, we already talked about the Six-Day War, um, but the 19, 1973, there was the Yom Kippur War, uh, which ran between October the 6th, 1973, and October the 24th, 1973. It was a fairly big war, um, it resulted in the death of 2,500 to 2,700 Israelis, and an estimated 10 to 16,000 Arab soldiers. Uh, wounded was twice as many. Um, the um, Israeli Defense Force lost uh, 1,000 tanks, uh, 102 jets, while the Arab forces lost 2,400 armored vehicles and over 400 aircraft. One of the big events um, that I remember um, Bob Pratt doing when we were investigating is he was after the Charles uh, Hickson and Calvin Parker case, which happened in Pascagoula um, on October the 18th, right in the middle of that war, was the Pascagoula abduction. And, and the Pascagoula case occurred in Pascagoula, Mississippi, where the um, ships, the um, a lot of surface nuclear ships and uh, nuclear submarines were constructed. They had a big base there where all this construction was taking place. So the Pascagoula case was a major sort of case. Uh, we have to remember that when I started in 1975, there were, Travis Walton hadn't been abducted yet. There was only a couple of cases. It was the Betty and Barney Hill case was known, the uh, Pascagoula case, and as we were investigating in 75, the Sandy Larson case came up. So Pascagoula was very famous at the time. Uh, when it was made known, and it's still fairly famous in terms of uh, uh, the number of abduction cases that's around. Um, now, one of the other things that occurred um, on this, and this occurred um, the day of the, the last day of the war, um, this is a sighting that occurred in Australia at the Harold E. Holt base. Now, this is a Navy base that was run by the Americans. Later on, they turned it over to the Australians. But it was a base where um, they were um, 
using ultra-low frequency waves had these big giant antennas and they had learned that with ultra-low frequency waves you could talk to submarines under the ocean. They had to still come up close to the surface but you could use these ultra-low frequency waves to communicate and there was this base, Harold E. Um, Holt base, was in charge of communication to all the Polaris submarines in the Indian Ocean and in the Eastern Pacific. So what happened there was um, there was a sighting um, over that base on October the uh, 25th, which would have been the 24th on um, um, in in uh, in Europe and in in America. So this uh, sighting and um, it, it may have been indicative of the fact that they were um, trying to block the signals to the Polaris submarine. Now the nuclear connection comes in, and we've, we've discovered this um, recently, is that Moshe Dayan requested and received authorization from the Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir to arm 13 uh, Jericho missiles and 8 F-4 Phantom fighters with nuclear warheads during that war. Uh, Brezhnev um, in the Soviet Union had threatened to deploy the Soviet airborne forces against Israeli forces and the U.S. Armed Forces were placed on DEFCON 3. Uh, so we, again, we have this situation where uh, Pascagoula happens, this event happens in Australia, and there's this um, DEFCON 3 um, uh, basically uh, we're on the verge of possible nuclear war. Uh, while the DEFCON 3 was still in effect, mechanics repairing an alarm system at an Air Force base in Michigan accidentally uh, activated it and that scrambled B-52 bombers at the base, nuclear bombers, uh, before the duty officer declared a false alarm. So again we have this connection with um, this uh, standoff. We still probably don't know all the um, intricate details of the communications going back between the Russians and the Americans, uh, this standoff threatening nuclear war and the situation in the Middle East and we have these two major UFO events that occur exactly as that nuclear situation is taking place. The other one I want to mention and this one I discussed in the book Charlie Red Star although a lot of this I had to take out and that was the connection to Rendlesham Forest. So Rendlesham Forest, um, the thing to keep in mind here <coughs> is that um, this was the big one of the biggest base the biggest base in Europe and what they had the nuclear weapons but more particularly they had forward base nuclear weapons that would be used as tactical nuclear weapons on a limited battlefield rather than the big nukes they had um, stuff that would be used in the battlefield and one exact type of scenario started up uh, in December of 1980 when this happened that um, these nukes would have been used if there ever the war had taken place. And that was that um, Warsaw Pact countries had mobilized several divisions to take uh, part in what's called the Soyuz 80 maneuvers on December the 8th, 1980. The White House was afraid that under the pretext of exercising, the Soviet army would enter Poland and break up solidarity. So the Solidarity Union had gotten control of Poland uh, Russia had moved a bunch of troops to the border 
And then these other uh, Warsaw Pact countries were planning this um, sort of maneuver. And um, everybody was on edge again. Um, and the, the, the question was, would the, um, would the Europeans and would the Americans step in, and the British, to uh, stop the uh, Soviets and the Warsaw Pact countries from going in and re uh, taking Poland because it looked like Poland was going to fall and that would be the first of the sort of their dominoes uh, The CIA director alerted on December the 2nd I believe the Soviets are preparing their forces for military intervention in Poland We do not know however whether they will make a decision to intervene or are attempting to find a political solution Carter wrote in his memoirs. I sent Brezhnev a direct message warning of serious consequences of a Soviet move into Poland and let him know um, more indirectly that we would move, move to transfer advanced weaponry to China. So they were playing China off against Russia. And the, the weird thing is now with the ATIP report, now they're uh, demonizing China as the worst uh, potential threat in the world in terms of uh, the United States. And in 1980, we had a situation where um, they were the Americans were actually willing to give advanced weaponry to China. Um, Moscow um, has developed. Um, they believe that Moscow had developed a plan uh, for intervention in Poland. The intervention was to take place in this joint exercise: East Germany, Czechoslovakia, moving into uh, Poland. Um, readiness for the Poland uh, to cross the Poland frontier was set for December the 8th. Now, the Rendlesham Forest events occurred just after Christmas, a, couple, a day after Christmas. Um, and so we have this situation where if uh, this thing had, they had invaded and the um, Europeans were to step in there, this was another situation where these tactical nuclear weapons uh, might have been used. So you, you have... The situation at Rendlesham Forest, where um, the UFOs come in, and then they were over the nuclear weapon storage area, and they had shot this beam down into the um, the weapon storage area. A lot of people made claims that they really hadn't affected anything, but there were stories that they changed the coding on these uh, these weapons, and that they had affected the weapons. And I remember Linda Howe talking about um, interacting with. Um, uh, Charles Holt about the um, where he had gone to the NSA and demanded to see the file on Reynolds from Forest and uh, this friend of his had shown him three foot stack of files on this case so there's a lot that happened at Reynolds that we really don't know we know the nukes uh, were affected there and again these were the type of weapons that would have been used um, to defend Poland or to get the um, the Russians the Czechs and all these other Warsaw Pact countries to uh, stop the invasion. Um, now we go to um, 1986, um, and this is the story, of course, of, of Chernobyl, where Chernobyl explodes, and then you have uh, the report of these um, objects over Chernobyl. It was actually reported in Pravda, where um, this object was hovering over the uh, the open, um, exposed area of the of the plant. And that the radioactive um, levels dropped, whatever it was, two thirds or something like that. And the idea was that they had actually 
help to seal this thing off to make it uh, less dangerous than it turned out to be dangerous, but it turned out to be less dangerous. This is reminiscent of the Canadians in the, the 1950s. Wilbur Smith talked about um, the different uh, beings that they were in contact with, and one of the beings they, they claimed to have had contact with was a being by the name of Tyla, and uh, Tyla was given the name of the, the garbage collector because uh, he was running around the world um, uh, decontaminating uh, from the nuclear tests, open-air tests that were being done at the time. So this would be almost like a Tyla type event where um, it goes in there and it uh, cleans up the mess of, of a nuclear disaster. Now there's also one now, and I'm trying to get an interview in Japan, and that is with the Fukushima plant. There's now a video out on the internet, and there is uh, a UFO museum that is open near the plant. And uh, this UFO, these five UFOs are flying over top of the plant. Now I'm trying to get an interview to find out whether the Japanese believe that video to be um, legitimate, uh, what it means, but it's the same sort of story as was occurring in 86 in uh, the um, Ukrainian city of Chernobyl. Um, 1988, we have uh, Robert Hastings talking about his encounter where um, this is a sort of a coincidence that the people that are involved in nuclear weapons stories uh, Robert Hastings, uh, Bob Salas, and uh, Robert Jacobs, um, all are experiencers. So Hastings is an experiencer, and he describes an encounter he had uh, that he believed with the beings in 1988. That is the same time when there was an encounter at the B-10 silo in the Minot field in North Dakota. I actually went with um, one of the three witnesses to the event, um, I took photographs at the um, of this um, nuclear uh, uh, test uh, site, and uh, these three witnesses had um, been going there. They're just outside of the town of Cool Root, North North Dakota, and this object had come right out of the missile silo. That's what she described it to me out of the metal thing. She said this UFO round um, of a copper with sort of like burn marks on it, 25 feet in the air, spinning at a very high rate of speed. Uh, the other two girls freaked out, started running back to, to, to town. The witness that I was there with um, said she stood there and watched this thing, and, it, and then it shot off. So we have 1988 as being another. Now, I'm not sure what the, the world event is yet, uh, as I'm just basically starting to research this, these possible connections. But now let me go to the big one. This is the, um, this is the um, grand finale here. Uh, in, when I was working with Bob Proud, of course, the big story that they wanted to do um, at that time was the Betty and Barney Hill case. It's always being seen as uh, one of the biggest cases in American ufology. And we now know from the work of Nancy Tremaine, that her encounter with the Greys was actually first. This is when the Greys appear, and the interesting thing is that the Greys are always linked to fear, that there's, um, they're linked. So whether it's the Greys are causing fear, or that people are manifesting Greys by being very fearful, in um, July of 1961, Nancy Tremaine had her first encounter in, in um, at a town um, in Michigan, 
with her friend. They were all regressed. They was a, a military investigation, which was pretty interesting, that the military seemed to have known right away. And we're trying to, they were interviewing everybody on the street. Uh, there was piles of witnesses that had seen this thing hovering during the daytime, had gone to the police. There was there was two police cars there while this, this event was going on. And so Nancy's event occurred in uh, July. She's actually produced two books on the, on the subject. And she's had everybody regressed she, that was in, that she could get. She's had the interview with the police and um, has done a very good job in documenting that. The Betty and Barney Hill uh, abduction case took place September the 19th of 61. Now, the thing is, what was happening at this time and what you find out, it was probably the major event of possible nuclear war that occurred. And I really didn't know that this had occurred um, until just the other day when I started to take a look at the the date of the Betty and Barney Hill and then go back and find this event. And it was the whole Berlin crisis. And a lot of people don't remember it, but it was the big one. For example, in July, when uh, Nancy Tremaine was taken, uh, the British had gone for a meeting with Nikita Khrushchev, and they were told to stay out of this, uh, the Berlin. What had happened is after World War II, both um, the Allies and Russia were had gone into Berlin where the war ended and the Americans taken part of the the Berlin and the East Germans had taken the other they had um, uh, Broken apart and West Germany was completely surrounded by East Germany and the Americans were actually flying stuff in there and so the standoff occurred until um, the time of the Betty and Barney Hill and the Nancy train sighting where the Soviets make a declaration that the Americans are to give up on West Berlin and they're going to take it over, and this standoff occurs. So um, the, the British had gone in, <coughs> the British ambassador had gone into um, the Soviet Union, and he had been told by Nikita Khrushchev uh, that they were to stay out of the Berlin crisis and not defend the Americans on, on the state of West Berlin. And he told him six hydrogen bombs would be quite enough to annihilate the British islands, and nine would take care of France. Uh, it, the Nikita Khrushchev also, to put on pressure for the Americans to drop West Berlin, announced the decision to resume nuclear testing and to end the moratorium that the U.S. and the USSR had observed since 1958. Khrushchev gave the go-ahead for physicist Andrei Sakharov, uh, to test a 100 megaton hydrogen bomb, the largest up to that time, which Sakharov would later um, uh, say that Khrushchev had called uh, an event that would hang over the capitalists like the sword of Damocles. Now, there's a book that's come out almost like the 60, the um, 67, the real story of the 67 war and the nuclear stuff, is in this book, uh, Foxbats Over Demona, and another a book that came out to describe this, um, the, the nuclear events surrounding West Berlin came out in a book called The Wizards of Armageddon, and then later on that, that um, author actually went back 20 years later and looked and found way more material. So here's the situation that was occurring when Nancy Tremaine and Betty and Barney Hill were taken. Um, it, it, as the guy, the Wizard of Armageddon wrote, 
The Berlin Crisis of 1961 does not loom large in the American memory, but it was an episode that brought the United States and the Soviet Union close to war, nuclear war. Um, newly available documents reveal that the Kennedy White House drew up a detailed plan for a nuclear first strike against the Soviets, and that Kennedy explored the first strike option seriously. Wars, war seemed not merely possible, but likely. The Joint Chiefs of Staff had determined that the United States and its European allies could not defend West Berlin with conventional weapons alone. That left nuclear war as the alternative to surrender. During the summer of 1961, this is when uh, Nancy Tremaine was taken, a small group of officials in the Pentagon and the White House worked out a plan for a first strike that would virtually wipe out the Soviets' nuclear arsenal, minimizing the chance of retaliation against the West. The plan was concrete and highly detailed. It spelled out what the flight paths the U.S. bombers would take, uh, at what altitudes they should fly, and at which targets they should hit, and how many of those kinds of nuclear bombs. And it concluded that the mission was feasible, that there was a fair probability of success. The first strike plan, as it turned out, was put forth in a coldly analytical 33-page memorandum to General Maxwell Taylor, who was the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Kennedy's special military advisor. It was discovered among Taylor's papers of the National Archives and declassified through a Freedom of Information Act request by the National Security Archives, a private research organization in Washington. Other documents, including many declassified over the past few years by the Kennedy Library in Boston, show that the memo was passed on to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and was discussed at a meeting of the National Security Council and was read and seriously contemplated by President Kennedy. On April the 25th, Kennedy sent a memo to his Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, requesting a report on the status of military planning for a possible crisis over Berlin. McNamara replied on May the 5th, NATO could not defend West Berlin with conventional weapons alone. Even an airlift would not succeed in reopening and maintaining air access in the face of, of determined Soviet opposition. Dean Acheson, who helped create the NATO military alliance while he was Secretary of State under Harry Truman, wrote Kennedy a long memo on Berlin which the president circulated widely. Acheson endorsed McNamara's plan to upgrade conventional forces, but warned that it would do no good unless the Soviets were convinced that any move against Berlin would trigger all-out war between the United States and the USSR, which by definition in those days meant nuclear war. July the 7th, so this is when basically within days when Nancy was taken, Henry Kissinger gets involved and warns about understanding what is involved. And the policy was, U.S. military policy at the time called for massive retaliation in the event of general war, shooting off all our nuclear weapons against every target in the Soviet Union, China, and all parts of Eastern Europe. No matter how limited the cause of war might be, this single Integrated Operational Plan, or ISIOP, as the military called it, 
was so tightly woven into logistics and training of the U.S. Strategic Air Command that it would be impossible to launch a smaller-scale nuclear attack, even if the president wanted to do it. Six days later, so this is the middle of July, the time of Nancy Tremaine's abduction, six days later, Kennedy held a National Security Council meeting on Berlin. Among the items on the agenda, quote, steps to prepare war plans which would permit the discriminating use of nuclear weapons in Central Europe and against the Soviet Union. On September the 5th, uh, so this is a couple days before Betty and Barney Hill are taken, a governor Kaysen, who had taken over the drafting of the plan, sent General Taylor the resulting 33-page memo titled Strategic Air Planning and Berlin. It included a very detailed description of the existing U.S. military war plan, uh, the SIOP-62, as the plan was known. And here, here's the staggering part. This is what the plan was. Uh, and this is just before Betty and Barney Hill were taken. As the plan was known, called for sending in the full arsenal of the Strategic Air Command, 2,258 missiles and bombers, carrying a total of 3,423 nuclear weapons against 1,077 military and urban industrial targets throughout the Sino-Soviet bloc. Kaysen reported that if the ISOP were executed, the attack would kill 54% of the USSR population and destroy 82% of the buildings. Then there was another plan to try to tone this down, and they came up with this crazy idea that they could maybe do it with uh, less than a million people killed, and possibly not much more than 500,000. The implications seem to be that uh, a million casualties would not be terrible enough to incite the Soviet leadership into an irrational urge for revenge, which is totally bizarre. If you kill less than a million people, they won't have an irrational urge for revenge. American facilities would range... The, the, the American fatalities, according to this plan, would range from negligible, in the best-case scenario, to 75% of the population of the United States in the worst-case scenario. In thermonuclear warfare, Kaysen wrote, people are easy to kill. The day of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, uh, uh, Kennedy makes the following statement. Um, I assume that I can stop the strategic attack at any time. Should I receive word the enemy has capitulated? Is this correct? Although one nuclear weapon will achieve the desired results, I understand that to be assured of success, more than one weapon is programmed for each target. If the first weapon succeeds, can you prevent additional weapons from inflicting redundant destruction? The day after the Betty and Barney Hill, Kennedy wrote, uh, or one of the advisors wrote, the time of the greatest danger of Soviet surprise attack is now and advised that if a general atomic war is inevitable, the U.S. should strike first. So I'll end it with that. The, uh, they managed to um, uh, have a situation where in August, so between the Nancy Tremaine abduction and the Betty and Barney Hill 
uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, that's when they started to build the wall. So the East Germans built the wall because there was 10,000 people defecting every um, uh, month to the West. They built the wall and that created this uh, standoff which went on until the Reagan uh, administration when the, the wall started to be torn down. But this would um, be clear to me to explain why the intelligence behind the phenomena would want to uh, interfere with nuclear weapons because, as the Pogo cartoon said, we have met the enemy and he is us. We have to be seen as a great scourge in the, um, the universe in terms of um, these kind of predictions of taking out millions and millions of people and then thinking that um, that's the way to do business. So that's it. For, thanks for listening. And um, the next one hopefully we'll have up is the Bob Demert interview. Uh, Bob Demert was the um, the guy who first led me on to the idea that nuclear weapons were part of the UFO phenomena that was happening here in Carmen, Manitoba. And then I'm doing this interview on cattle mutilations and the connection to nuclear weapons. Thanks for listening. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.